Ahoy Mets fans! Welcome to episode 309 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, but you won't be hearing from me much this week at all because we have a minor league spectacular here. Three of our minor league uh, experts at the site, Steve Saipa, Lucas Vlahos, and Kenneth Lavin, will be sitting around and talking about all things Mets minor league. So, enjoy. Hey everybody, this is Steve Saipa, and this week I'm joined by Lucas Lajos and Kenny Levin, our prospect team. So guys, how's it going? All good, right. Good. So this week we're going to go over our top 25 prospect list. And to give everyone a little background, um, I try not to be like a dictator when it comes to these things. Obviously we share notes and ideas, and we have a lot of the same sources and guys that help shape ideas and stuff, but... With three different guys, and I try to be as hands-off with everybody's opinions as I can. So the three of us, we came up with our lists independently of each other. You know, everyone wrote theirs, they sent them to me, I combined everything, and that is our official list. So like I said last week, the process that we use to analyze players and rank players and everything, it's, it's a subjective thing. Everyone does it differently. My process is different from Lucas's and Kenny's, and their processes are different from each other. So guys, tell me what you look for when you come to when it comes to analyzing and ranking these kids. Uh, Ken, why don't you go first? Um, okay, yeah, I, I basically just um, I don't know. This was the first year I kind of did this, so I started kind of crude, just asking myself who I who I think the best player in the system is, who is the next best player in the system. Um, but like. Really just trying to get a feel for, like, the risk involved in somebody's profile, what this guy looks like, you know, against more advanced arms, uh, or more advanced, you know, sort of what what the um, the big league outcome looks like and how much risk is involved to get there, kind of. Um, so I've... I think I've done this a couple years now, which by no means makes me any sort of expert, but my opinions have definitely changed uh, over the years. I used to care a lot more about proximity and and a likely outcome. Um, but recently, especially over the last year or so, and I think this has uh, been influenced in a big way kind of by basketball, uh, where you're, where the game is so dependent on stars that everything you do is about recruiting stars. And baseball obviously isn't as dependent on one or two players, but the more I've thought about things, the more I've come to care about upside, uh, often at the cost of proximity or safety. And that makes evaluating the system particularly hard for me because I'm not a scout. I don't see players. I'm just going off stats and what I read most of the time. And almost all of the guys with upside are recent July 2nd signings or guys down in the rookie leagues where the stats mean nothing or next to nothing. But my general philosophy has definitely shifted more towards I want upside. I want guys who are going to strike people out. I want dudes who are going to hit 30 homers. And if that's their 90 percentile outcome and their 80th percentile outcome is not a major leaguer, I'm fine with that. Um, So that's kind of my general philosophy about ranking prospects. All right, so let's start at the bottom of the list now. Coming in at 25 on our list was Francisco Alvarez. He was a 16-year-old Venezuelan catcher that the Mets signed for 
$2.7 million, and that broke the record that they set last year when they gave Ronnie Mauricio $2.1 million. Yeah. Uh, I didn't rank him, and neither did Kenny. Lucas, you were the only one that did, and you were a little bullish on him. You ranked him 16th on your list. Yes. So go into that a little bit. So uh, as I said, playing for upside definitely makes me more eager to rank July 2nd guys, and Francisco Alvarez definitely fits into that bucket. Um one of the more notable prospects in this year's class, the best prospect the Mets signed. Uh, and despite the fact that he's 16, he's uh, probably as safe as you can say a July 2nd prospect is. He's already pretty filled out physically. He's 5'11 and 220, which I'm not sure if that quite qualifies as big boy season, but it's got to be getting getting close, right? Or at least on the track to be there. Um and working off the reports, his his catching defense should be fine. He should be able to stick there, and he's already has a a decent track record of hitting for uh, hitting and hitting for some power. Um, so I think the the, the potential upside there of a 16 year old catcher that's uh, coming out of uh, Venezuela, a country where with a good track record for producing strong catchers, uh, but one who has a solid skill base already. Uh, that might allow him to move faster than what you'd expect from a typical July 2nd signing. Like that's a profile that really excites me. Uh, catcher's super hard to fill. The bar is super low. So any sort of major leaguer who can hit a little bit with a little bit of pop, it, it screams upside to me. So that's why I ranked him as high as I did. Now I will say I probably ranked him a bit too high. Every year I do this, I go back over my list. And I'm like, what the hell was I thinking two days ago? But Lucas, um, I have at least three on my list that I'm, like, already iffy on. It's, like, literally, <laughs> yeah. I'm, like, uh, I look over it. I'm staring at it for several hours. I'm, like, I think I'm okay with this. Send to Steve. Ten minutes later, this is trash. What is wrong? <laughs> I think I submitted me? mine to Steve, like, three times. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were quite a few. <laughs> uh, I mean, Je- Jeff always says that. Jeff has always said to us, like, ordinal rankings are inherently stupid. But yeah. yeah it's necessary. And like, if we did it in tiers, it'd be a lot easier. And I think for instance, Alvarez is definitely in that, like back half of the list tier, but one that I really like because of the upside. All yeah, right. Like if, Sounds uh, good. Oh, could I add something on Francisco mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Alvarez? Yeah. Um, if basically the only thing we know about him is like scouting reports from like the Dominican and he got a very large signing bonus, like the fact that, they decided to spend more money on him than anyone, you know, in that market ever. Uh, it's probably like a good sign. <laughs> True. But if you're scouting same... the signing bonus, it helps that the signing <laughs> bonus is large. <laughs> that is true. But then at the same time, with a player also, who was yeah. signed internationally that we will uh, look at later, he was only signed for $50,000 and he is one of our top prospects. Oh. But see Gregory Guerrero. <laughs> exactly. Can, uh, what Kenny Hernandez? Uh, well, we will go now from one catcher to another, and coming in at 24 on our list is Ali Sanchez, and he was one of the top catching talents a few years ago during the 2013 to 2014 international signing period, and he signed for the Mets for almost a little under $700,000, and he hasn't exactly been bad, especially when you factor in the fact that he's dealt with a few more than a few injuries. Uh, over the course of his his time as a professional, but he hasn't really been too impressive either. Uh, he is a career 259, 314, 334 hitter, 
And last year, he hit 265, 294, 387. So, Kenny, you were the high man on him. Uh, I didn't rank him. Neither did Lucas. And weirdly, coincidentally, you also ranked him 16 on your list, just like Lucas did with Alvarez. So what the hell? So, uh, go into a little bit about why you're higher on Sanchez than the two of us. Um, I just think um, catchers are weird, one. And uh, two, they just play forever. Like, if you're looking at, like, a like a flyer or, like, a lower-level guy who's probably going to have a big-league career, um, you know, a catcher who has decent catch-and-throw skills and can really frame a pitch is a decent bet to have, like, maybe not a career of, of like, consequence or anything, but a career, which is probably more than you can say about some of the other back-end-of-the-list guys, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, making the major leagues is a pretty... Uh big accomplishment and kicking around for a while is an even bigger one that being said i probably had him far too high on my own list <laughs> i have also just discovered th- something there's another catcher in the met system wilfred ostadio is he mm-hmm. related is he related to the ostadio yes he is related to williams and how did we not oh, rank him this is unacceptable <laughs> i think their father is also like a will something Unacceptable. <laughs> what a terrible... Can I go back and replace Sanchez with him? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, next up at 23 is Bobby Wall, and he got traded. And I don't think that anyone has any strong feelings on Bobby Wall. Nope. All right. All right. So we'll just skip over him. And we will go next to number 22, and that was Daniel Zamora. The Mets got him this year from the Pirates in exchange for Josh Schmoker. And he had a pretty solid season in Binghamton, and then he got called up, and he looked a lot more impressive than he actually probably is. Uh, I was the high man on him. I ranked him 14th. Uh, it's a good thing I didn't rank him 16, because that'd be really weird. Yeah, that'd be bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you two guys didn't rank him at all. So for me, I ranked Zamora as high as I did, because he has a major league caliber pitch in his slider, and he can get major league outs. He's literally done it. That's more than like guys like Wall, Eric Canholt, who's on the list a little bit later. That's more than the other relievers that we've ranked around this area last year are able to say. I don't think that he's going to be necessarily um, a dominant high leverage reliever. I think his ultimate ceiling is like a lefty one out guy. And that really is what his arsenal is suited for. But like we were just saying before with Sanchez, the ability to stick on a major league roster for however minimal the role is, that's still a pretty big accomplishment. Agreed. And he should see a lot of major league time this year because the Mets need left-handed relief. Something tells me that Luis Avalon is not uh, reliable at this point in his career. Yeah, and I I think we're like maybe two outings where Justin Wilson, you know, just like can't throw strikes away from... Zamora getting the call to just be in the bullpen, you know? Yep. I wouldn't just be surprised if he's in the opening day bullpen at this point. It's a good chance. All right. Well, next up is 21, and that is Will Tuffy. And the Mets got him also in a trade this year, this time from Oakland, along with Bobby Wall. And they got him in exchange for Jury's Familiar. And he hit 244, 357, <clears throat> 384 in half a season with Stockton Ports, which is Oakland's high A team. And then he hit 254, 394, 433 with the Rumble Ponies for the rest of the season. So, Toffee, I was the odd man out because I didn't rank him at all. Uh, Lucas, you had him at 15, and Kenny, you had him at 21. 
I didn't actually even put him on my extended list because I just don't like Will Toffee. Yeah. Um, Lucas, I know you like the profile. So yeah, try, I'm a, try to sell I'm a sucker for walks, honestly. Um, so first of all, I think that the fact that he's able to post a significantly above average line at all, despite playing the entire season through a, a significant shoulder injury that I believe he's had surgery for already. I'm pretty sure he has. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, that, that's a big deal. Like that destroys all your power, uh, saps a lot of your bat speed, and he's still able to put up a 130 weighted uh, in double A. Uh, walked almost 20% of the time, 18% of the time. That's almost as much as he struck out. Um, and I, I, while the power has been lacking, I think a lot of that is A, the shoulder, and B, I think uh, will develop a little bit more. He's never going to be someone who hits 30 bombs, but we've also said that about uh, plenty of guys in recent times, and they've come up to the majors and started hitting bombs. Uh, realistically, he's like a useful platoon bat at the corners or maybe second base because he has a good defensive reputation. Um, and as a lefty bat off the bench, who can work a count, that's got value. Um, if the power steps forward and the defense stays good and the approach stays strong, he could be a second division starter. And I think that's interesting enough to go in the teens in this system. Well, I'm not exactly sold, but <laughs> uh, our listeners at least have a, a better profile of who he is. Uh, after they have coffee, to sell like a will to- if he ever makes the majors, there has to be like a, a candy line promotion <laughs> or something like just sells itself. Come on, Mets. Toffee's toffee. Yeah, toffee's something toffee. like that. It's very obvious. Well, next up, we have Jordan Humphreys at 20. He didn't pitch last year because of Tommy John surgery, but the year before, when he was in Columbia, he was one of the best, if not the best, pitcher in the South Atlantic League in the first half. He posted a 1.42 ERA in 69 and a two-thirds innings, and he allowed 41 hits. He walked just nine batters, and he struck out 80. Uh, He was promoted to St. Lucie. He made two starts. He looked real bad, and poof, (laughs) there goes the UCL and the 2018 season. Uh, Kenny, you ranked him the highest. I didn't rank him, and Lucas had him at 21. So tell us a little bit about what you like in Humphreys. Um, I think he's a decent bet to stay a starter, if not necessarily a particularly good one. Um, uh, I'm also a sucker for guys who have shown really good command. Um, as my comment about Justin Wilson a minute ago probably <laughs> elucidates... <laughs> Nothing frustrates me more than watching a guy just, like, miss the zone multiple times in a row. Um, That's not really a thing with Humphreys. Um, That being said, who knows what he's going to look like when he comes back from TJ, and uh, he's really only had success in leagues in which he was kind of old for the level. But if you're asking me, you know, I I like guys who I think are going to be starters, even if, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, the stuff doesn't jump out at you. Well, when I saw him in Columbia, the stuff definitely didn't jump out. Well, no, <laughs> let me let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. He he was pitching. The, the stats were sterling, but the stuff was just kind of not bad, not good, just kind of there. You know, just I assume kind of similar to um, I watched a couple of David Peterson starts uh, just like carving up hitters who are maybe a level or two below where yeah. he should be. So, I mean, a lot will depend definitely on what he looks like 
coming back from Tommy John and what this stuff looks like. There's also just like a dearth of these guys in the system, like guys who... This is, yeah, this is not a great system. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lack of guys who might be viable, like starters, even if, you know, they're starters you're always looking to upgrade from. Right, I mean, look look at a guy like um, Dylan G. Nothing exciting whatsoever, but what did he have, like a almost a 10-year major league career? Seven yeah. years, like whatever. Like $30 was... million dollars or whatever. Yeah. Started opening was, day one year. <laughs> Did he start opening day in like 2013 or something oh, like yeah. that? Oh, yeah, I remember that being a thing. Oh, God. Those are some bad years. They all blend together for me, man. Yeah, because yeah. there were some bad years. <laughs> he was well, worth and... almost two wins in uh, 2013. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him. Uh, after Humphreys, we have two guys that I kind of lumped together, Stanley Consuegra and Adrian Hernandez at 19 and 18. Both of them were signed during the 2017 to 2018 international signing period. Consuegra for 500000 and Hernandez for $1.5 million. So they're both raw. Hernandez has a little more power, and Consuegra has a better hit tool, but uh, Consuegra has progressed a bit further than Hernandez. He made a stateside debut this year, and he didn't exactly impress, but he did hold his own as a 17-year-old. Um, I didn't rank either guy, but you both ranked them, uh, and you both ranked one kind of highish. Uh, Lucas, you ranked Consuegra at 8th, and Kenny ranked Hernandez at 14. So why don't the two of you guys tell me about why you ranked those respective guys where you did? Uh, all right, I guess I'll go first by saying... Uh, I overshot that a little bit, <laughs> probably more than a little bit. Um, I mean, we got we got uh, some hype posted in our, our Slack at one point about Conserva. I'm going to butcher that pronunciation every time. I'm sorry. Um, and like the the profile is really exciting, right? It's like loud exit velos, center field body, center field tools, projectable for more power, but should. I mean, you can't, it's hard to project growth from a 17-year-old, but should be able to stick in center. Um, I mean, the stats were underwhelming, but who cares? It's he's a 17-year-old in rookie ball. It doesn't matter. Um, so like I said, this is a profile that I really don't have an easy time evaluating because there's no stats to look at. I have no expertise in looking at them myself, even if I got video to look at. We're going off of mostly secondhand reports or, or just other scouting reports, but... Um, based on what they say, it's it oozes oozes upside and uh, like a five to potential five tool center fielder, and that's always going to be very high on any list I put together. Now, someone tell me why I'm wrong and why I'm too excited <laughs> about this guy. And now, all July second prospects are just just going to break your heart, and he'll be out of baseball in five years, and we'll forget his name. It's a possibility, but hopefully that doesn't happen. Yeah. Hopefully. Oh. It's also a possibility with uh, Adrian Hernandez, who is the 14th best prospect in the system, according to my list. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, like Lucas, I, I don't have a great feel for these, uh, you know, IFA signings. Um, I guess we'll see what it looks like <laughs> when he eventually does make it stay, stateside. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. He just he seems to have some upside um, that guys behind him on the list, like Louis Carpio, you know, 
toffee, etc. don't really have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also a sucker for power, and that being potentially a part of his game, at least, you know, from reports we've gotten. It's definitely something that skews um, towards my sort of, I guess, bias. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, probably have him way too high. <laughs> I mean, in, ter- in terms of the meaningless rookie stats, Hernandez actually put up a better line than Mauricio. So, yeah, but, you know, that, that doesn't the, mean anything, <laughs> but it's something, right? It's like, all right, he can get for more he power. He performed well in the environment that he was in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do think it's kind of telling, though, that they, um, you know, have brought the other two big guys from that signing period, stateside, and Hernandez is still in the the DSL. Well, everybody develops at their own pace. True, development's not. Guys can just, you know, come out of nowhere. And one guy that kind of came out of nowhere is Stephen Velines. And he's our 17th ranked prospect. Oh, yes. He was ranked at, uh, he was signed for just $50,000 out of the University of Kansas last year. And he's been utterly dominant ever since. And there's really only one person to talk about the lines. So, Lucas, take it away. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I put him top 10 and I have zero regrets about this. I have some regrets about this, but not really. No, no regrets about this. I mean, <laughs> let, let me just read you his strikeout minus walk numbers at, across five levels here. 34.4%, 40.3%, 35.5%, slouching at 24.7, back up to 34.9. Like, like that's just insane, right? The, it, it's the minor leagues. He's a college reliever, whatever, whatever. That's still nuts. That's bonkers. Um, and this is a guy with a whatever fastball, whatever secondaries, a wonky delivery, and he just me- melts through bats anyway. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and the annoying thing is that he should have moved faster. Like, this is a college closer who's clearly been too good for every level he's at. Though, knowing the Mets, they probably looked at his Fangraphs page and were like, oh, he has a 4.86 ERA at single A. <laughs> Does it striking out 15 guys <laughs> for nine innings when he's got an ERA of five? He's bad, right? Listen, so like, when you have one guy in the entire analytics department, you gotta, you know, like, do you, what you, you gotta like, do. You, you cut costs where you can, right? But this is someone who probably should have seen major league time in 2018 so that I wouldn't have ranked him top 10 when he inevitably gets bounced around. Um, and like being realistic, he's probably a middle reliever or seventh inning guy. But but going with my gut or heart or whatever else, I want to see him become like an elite closer and strike out 12 guys per nine innings at the major league level and be Bradford 2.0. Uh, I love Stephen Valines. I'm looking I mean, forward to seeing him make the majors this year. And if he doesn't, I'm going to be angry. It is possible. I mean, we have seen guys with that kind of similar profile do that. Maybe not striking out 12 guys in any, uh, you know per nine, but you know, guys that have been really good. And I love the guys like who, uh, super Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, just, I love guys who are like, they have to, to prove it every step along the way. Mm-hmm. And like Stephen Valenz has did nothing but prove that he belongs. <laughs> this entire, yeah, he's been I, elite everywhere he's gone. I find it a little odd out there that, you know, the numbers are good. The scouting report is, you know, kind of, eh, but he is a guy that, you know, because of his delivery and everything, you kind of, 
not have to discount, but you have to add like an asterisk to, I guess, if that makes sense. But he's a guy that's gotten no fanfare whatsoever. And it's just a little odd, given the fact that he's been so good and dominant in college and then every stop uh, in the minor leagues. To be clear, he's not like we don't we're not asking anyone to draft this guy in the first round, a la Eddie Coons, <laughs> but like God, more of on, those on bad. On a scale of one to Paul Seawald, what's his like good outcome? I mean his good outcome is Paul Seawald, right? Yeah, like that's, major that's league reliever. <laughs> I think I, he could be better than Seawald. I absolutely think he can be I think he will be better and I think he has potential to be a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um I'm a sucker for strikeouts, and this guy does it with with stupendous control as well. So let's see how it plays in AAA to start the season, presumably. And then uh, when Edwin Diaz inevitably blows out his elbow or Jerry Stramilia's shoulder explodes again. Bite your tongue. Yeah, no. It's the Mets. We know what to expect at this point. Uh, We'll see him, and uh, hopefully he's as exciting as I want him to be. Well, uh, when that happens... We may have uh, a potential replacement with our number 16th prospect, Eric Hanholt. Uh, he's solid reliever in the kind of fastball slider mold that the Mets like. Not very exciting. Um, does anyone have any strong feelings on him? Should have gotten more Major League time last year. Agreed. Yeah, I have nothing to add on Hanholt. Like, just Met, Mets going to Met. Yeah, that's, I guess... <laughs> he's the most Mets guy possible. We got to see more of... Um... Tim Peterson and uh, Paul Seawald definitely don't know what we have there yet. (laughs) Well, after him is uh, number 14, and that is Tony DeBrell. He was drafted at a Kennesaw State in 2017. It was used sparingly in Brooklyn, but he spent last year in Columbia, and he posted a 3.50 ERA in 131 innings, and he led the South Atlantic League in strikeouts with 147. So I was the high guy on DeBrell, and I don't think that he's going to be just a good pitcher. Well, excuse me. I don't think that he is, is, is just a good pitcher. I think that he is one of the best in the system. Uh, I have him ranked fifth overall, just behind David Peterson. I think I originally had him seventh, and then when Dunn and Kalanick got traded, you know, he shifted up a couple of spots to five. Now, here's my rationale for that, and I will use Justin Dunn, who is... A top would you would everybody agree that Dunn is a top prospect in this system before he was traded? Oh yeah. Top, like top five, yeah. Again, <laughs> weak system, but yeah. All right. So Dunn, fastball is low to mid nineties, tops out about ninety six, has plenty of life. DeBrell has a fastball that sits in low to mid nineties, tops out about ninety four, and it doesn't have as much life, but it does have some sync to it. Dunn, low to mid uh, eighty slider with uh Late shot break, it's, you know, average to plus, generally, uh, accepted as being. DeBrell, he's a low 80 slider with with late shot break. It flashes average to above average. Done at a kind of firm mid to high 80s changeup, flashed average. DeBrell has a high 70s, low 80s changeup, and it flashes average to above average. Done had a kind of get me over 11-5 curveball, fringe average pitch. DeBrell, 11-5 curveball. That is about an average pitch. Stuff-wise, they're very similar. Uh, The biggest difference was that Dunn kind of has fringe to average command, and DeBrell has below average command. We did see some gains, so maybe he's bumped up that 
that commands a half grade or so. But it was mainly that half grade of command that was the biggest difference between the two of the guys. You know, their fastballs, very similar. Dunn slider was better. DeBrell's changeup is better. And their curveballs are kind of, you know, negligible difference. So am I just delusional in thinking that DeBrell is a lot better than people give him credit for? Uh, I mean, I regret, I don't think I ranked him, which I think was a mistake. But like looking, like you look at his what he's done so far, and he's a 23-year-old in A-ball. If he's as good as you're saying, why is he making 23 starts and throwing 131 innings as a 23-year-old in A-ball? That's also something that I had no clue about, and, you know, Mets are going to Met. But there was a noticeable difference in his uh, walk rates between the first and the second half. I think his walk went down, like, 1.5 1.5 per inning per nine innings or something like that. So it could have been some kind of organizational, you know, mandate, decree, whatever decision that we didn't know about because he clearly responded in the second half. It might just be an illusion, you know, small sample size of about 60 innings or so. And mm. in the second half, guys, you know, shuffling up and down. Or it could be that he made some gains in, you know, one of the biggest parts of his game that he was lacking in. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, did you rank him, Ken? I don't. I had him at 20, and I probably, as, as the running theme of this podcast is gone, uh, I'd probably like to have him a few spots higher now that I'm looking at it again. Um, really, I, ju- I just, I think he's probably a reliever. I'm not quite as bullish as it on him as, as Steve is, but um, I really like arm speed relievers <laughs> and he has arm speed. He certainly has a lot of arm speed. Um, I think this stuff will play way up out of the pen. So. I mean, he doesn't really have a, usually when I look, want to, when I'm looking at a starter and asking if he'll be a good reliever, I want to see he's got a good, he's got a really good pitch, another good pitch. And then it's the lack of third pitch that's really hurting him. And that's not what DeBrell's profile really screams to me. Um, yeah, maybe the breaking ball plays up in the bullpen more. Uh, I just, I just I mean, think just he's really going to go from uh, like, he's what? 91 to 94. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think he's yeah. probably closer to like 95 to 97 out of the pen. I mean, the Mets just make our lives so difficult here. There's no reason this profile should be in double A or a single A. There's no reason it should be double in double A. It should be in triple A at this point, like, right? I, I like, guess he's kind of raw, right, Steve? He's, he's more of like a, a raw pitcher. Uh, uh, no, he's, he he's, gotten, he's gotten some work in at Kennesaw State. He was at least in their in their last his last year there, his junior year. He was like the bulldog. I think he pitched over 100 innings for them. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike Anthony Kay, didn't blow his arm out promptly thereafter. Very true. Well, speaking of guys that blow things out, at Uh number 14, we have Desmond Lindsay. Oh, God. Uh, What did he hurt this time? uh, What's left? I don't know. (laughs) He was their first draft pick in 2015. That was the year they gave up their first round pick in order to sign Michael Kadair. I'm going to go off on on a little tangent here because I did some research a couple of days ago. And yes, it was a terrible process that they gave up a pick for Michael freaking Kadair. But it turns out the Mets didn't exactly lose out. Uh, they were supposed to pick 15, and the Brewers did instead. And the Brewers picked uh, Trent Grisham. 
And then after him, the Yankees picked James Caprellian. Then the Indians picked Brady Aiken. Then the Giants picked Phil Bickford. Then the Pirates picked Kevin Newman. The A's picked Richie Morton. The Royals picked Ash Russell. The Tigers picked Bo Burrows. The Cardinals picked Nick Plummer. And you have to go all the way to the 24th pick, which is when the Dodgers picked, to get somebody who's like has some decent upside. And that's this Walker Jenner. This draft is terrible. Yeah. Jeez. So, I mean, there's, there's no guarantee that if the Mets did have that pick, they would have picked anybody in that little grouping. But, you know, in, in the first round, kind of, you know, there are guys that are identified as first round kind of players. And I don't think that the Mets would have uh, struggled if they did pick anybody with, if they did have a first round pick that year. But getting back to Lindsay, um, it turns out that the Mets haven't really gotten much out of him because of injuries. He played a career-high 84 games last year, but he missed about a month or so because of nagging back injuries and an arm injury. And he didn't hit very well. He hit 218, 310, 320. And then the year before, he played 65 games, and he missed um, the rest of the season because of numbness in his hand that he needed surgery on. The year before that, 2016, he missed about half the season because of hamstring and leg injuries. So there's a lot of injury history there. Kenny, you were the high man on him. You ranked him 12th, whereas I had him at 18 and Lucas 20. So give me some hope and convince me to be excited as you are on Desmond Lindsay. Um, Excited might be the wrong word. Um, Really, it's just, so the athleticism (laughs) is still pretty great. That describes basically this entire list. Yeah, the Mets system as a whole. Exciting is a little strong. Um, but yeah, he, he's, I mean, the, the story is well known on him. He's, you know, got to stay healthy, but all of the tools are intriguing to say the least. Um, he's also shown a little bit of, um, on base might be the wrong word also, because if I recall correctly, it's, it's really just walks. Um, but yeah, he's, he's certainly a great athlete. I'm also a little biased. I saw him in Brooklyn and he looked like by far the, the best player on the field. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I remember uh, I, yeah. I saw him in Brooklyn uh, that year. <clears throat> and, like, he was, well, I think that was the year he was out of high school. Or maybe it's a, yeah. a year later. I forget. But comparing him to some of these guys that were, like, college guys. Like, he just looked like a fucking, uh, excuse me. He looked like just kind of oh, a cares? beast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, no, he was, like, like, a large man in a league full of, full of like. Right. Guys that are, like, three, four years older than him. Yeah. Um, and, like, the skills are good. It's it's just, um, you know, that's what happens when you have all of these injuries recurring. It's very hard to get into any kind of rhythm. And sometimes some of those, you know, sharp skills kind of degrade a little bit. Uh, I will say that this is probably the last year that I'm going to have him anywhere near this high um, unless he finally manages to stay healthy. Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. I mean, have we have we have there been any good recent looks on him to comment as to whether uh, all these injuries have sapped any of the physical skills? Is it is it that he's no longer the physical specimen he once was, or is it that he's still that player but he's just raw and has missed all this development time? Um, uh, a little bit of both. I mean, mm-hmm. he's st- even though he has been in the system for a couple of years, I think he has a total of like eighty-five games or something like that as professional, which is. Not a lot when you consider how how long he's been in the, in the 
in the system. Yeah, this is going to be year four of the Desmond Lindsay experience. Yeah. And, and um, game four. <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> but the tools are um, diminished, but I've I've heard that he still, you know, has the ability to play a, a decent center field. You know, when he was first drafted, they kind of thought he could play center. He'd never had before, and he really took to it. And it looked like he would possibly even like, you know, a plus center fielder. Now it's just he has the ability to play there. Um, and the only major change I know was that during the AFL, he kind of has been retooling his swing, and it was kind of kind of a level swing and he's now adding some loft to it and he did hit three or four home runs in the afl so i mean that's something it might you know it's, it's AFL's... also the afl right also, it's, it's yeah. small sample size but it is something so mm. i guess we'll see i mean if, if the tools or at least most of them are still there this is still a, a profile that has a lot of upside and in this system could be top 10 if he has a good first half or top five even if he has a good first half yeah i mean look at jeff mcneil just injured the last couple of years finally healthy and bam he is one of the most valuable rookies in the national league mix center field <laughs> mix well, six <laughs> next up is our 13th prospect and that is luis santana and there would have been plenty to say about him, but he got <laughs> traded. So I am bitterly J.D. Moving. Davis. Yeah, I'm bitterly moving on. And Awful. 12 is Simeon Woods Richardson. He was drafted in the second round of the draft last year, and nobody saw it coming, including Simeon himself. <laughs> uh, the reports were mixed on draft day. But he looked really good in the limited innings that he pitched. Uh, he had a 1.56 ERA in 17.1 innings with the GCL Mets and Kingsport. He allowed 15 hits, he walked four, and he struck out 26. And the main thing is that his fastball, which reports are saying during the spring was kind of backing up into the low 90s, was in full force. And he was regularly hitting, you know, 96, 97 on the radar gun down at the uh, complex in St. Lucie and a Kingsport. So that's a good thing. I was the low man on him. And really, that was because of his age. Um, I'm kind of the opposite, I guess, of Lucas. Um, I'm a little biased against younger players with too much, without much experience. And Woods Richardson uh, doesn't have too much of that. The profile is very nice. Especially the fact that the fastball, you know, it's regained its mid-90s power. So he's a guy that, you know, next year I can definitely see myself ranking him from, you know, fringe top 25 to easy top 10. The stuff is there. He has a good makeup. I especially like the fact that um, he's he's a gamer, I guess is the best way to say it. You know, he'll he'll pitch inside. He will let you know that when he's on the mound, he's in charge. Um that's an attitude that I like to see, you know, from pitchers. Sounds fair. All right. So 11 is Russ Adolph. And Goodbye. again, yeah, there would have been plenty to say about that, but he got it's traded. Oh, oh, well. What were they thinking? Like, what? In, in before J.D. Davis is both a useful hitter and an interesting pitcher this year, and we're all eating our words. 
it's unlikely, but they, possible. Yes, I don't think that's going to happen. No. This was bad. I'm not a fan of Davis. This, but J.D. Davis, the pitcher, is... <laughs> I don't think likely to give us anything. Wait, so, wait, you're uh, telling me someone who hasn't pitched a significant <laughs> level since, like, college isn't going to be a viable major league reliever? I'm so shocked. Like, speaking of arm speed, like, um, there, there's some arm speed there. It's just, like, like, anybody can throw 92 over and over again. Like, you know, you need something to break up the timing, and he has shown exactly zero of that. <laughs> um... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> if you're asking me who's going to be a better position player pitching in 2019, J.D. Davis or is it Matt Davidson? Matt Davidson. The one who just signed with the Rangers? It's yeah. probably Matt Davidson. Well, exciting. Very exciting. Oof. Well, now this is going to get real exciting because we're up to the, the real meat of this list, the top ten. And coming in at number 10 is Anthony Kay. Uh, he was drafted in the first round of the 2016 draft, but then underwent Tommy John, and he came back last... Excuse me, you know, yeah, it is last year at this point. He came back last year, and he split his season with the Cola Flies and St. Lucie. And he was kind of very eh with Columbia, and... A little better with St. Lucie, but not really. And it's a kind of, you know, back inning, back of the rotation profile. Um, I know Lucas has some very strong feelings about him. Yes. So, Lucas, uh, why don't you let everyone know what you think of Anthony K? So, the the fact that, like, he was a bad pick from the get-go, right? Like, they had uh, two picks at the top of the draft. Even if Anthony Kay is healthy, he's a mediocre stuff back end of the rotation lefty, which who doesn't really have an option to fall back on as a reliever, right? He's either a back end starter or he's nothing, which is just such a unexciting suboptimal profile to draft that high. And that's before you get into the fact that at UConn, which is in, pretty infamous for doing this, he was just running to the ground repeatedly, like throwing 120 pitches for outings, uh, pitching on two days rest in the playoffs or the tournament or whatever they call it, right? And, and then predictably, he blew out his arm. Like, this was totally unsurprising and predictable. So now you've drafted someone whose only real value is that he should move fast through your system and be a back-end starter soon. And he immediately is getting hurt and missing two seasons. And now he's come he's come back, presumably healthy, and the stuff is still as underwhelming as ever, maybe a little bit worse, and, and, and it's really just a nothing burger of a prospect and a waste of a pick. Would you feel differently about it if Cameron Plank had progressed at a better rate than he has? He was the... 11th round, 10th or 11th round pick that year. And he was, you know, a bonus baby given a million dollar. Um, I mean, how much did they save on bonus. K? Uh, I don't 900K or so. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit. I mean, maybe. I, I don't remember that who was drafted there shortly thereafter off the top of my head. But 
I don't know. I probably would feel more optimistic if Plank had developed, but in general, I would rather uh, draft something. I'm sure there was something more interesting that could have be put it could have been drafted for the same slot savings, or just use the pick for something appropriate for the slot rather than I trying mean, to float money to a a high school arm, which is fundamentally the riskiest possible profile you can draft. Also about that strategy, like when all the teams are trying to do that, it's not really as easy to get value, you know, later in the draft when everybody's trying to save on their early picks and then float the savings later to buy guys out of commitments. Like that was a great strategy in 2012 when like the Astros were the only team doing it, but now you have literally 30 teams, you know, all fighting for the, the same, you know. <laughs> like some of the guys taken right after him, Will Smith, who's now a yep. real catching prospect. For You'd one hundred percent rather have Will Smith. Will Smith, Taylor Trammell, who might be one of the best outfield prospects in baseball, was taken three picks later. I still think Dalton Jeffries is slash was better, but he also got hurt, and I'm cow biased there, so whatever. Joey <laughs> Wentz, who is definitely a better pitcher. I mean, uh, even Dakota that... Hudson has pitched in the big leagues. Yeah, like the, the two, three picks after him, like there, there are. I mean, P, thankfully they still were able to get Alonzo. Like, he's really going to save that draft. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, Bo Bichette drafted after Alonzo. Like there are options here, whether it's below slot or at slot or even over slot here, and you do other things later. But there are just so many. This pick was dumb the moment it was made, and the the results have borne that out so far. And and I go back to the fact that this injury was totally predictable. If you want to draft a fast-to-the-majors pitcher, that's fine. Don't draft – like, I don't like it, but it's justifiable. Don't draft one that literally everyone knows is either already hurt or is an incredibly high risk of getting hurt immediately because that destroys the only reason you drafted him in the first place. Rant, uh, rant over. <laughs> well, the the Mets are always ahead of the curve when it comes to you know their analytics and and strategy uh-huh. and whatnot. Uh-huh. And that's a good segue to our number nine prospect, Franklin Killerme, who has a very nice curveball. Uh, he was signed by the Phillies as a eighteen uh, year old out of the Dominican, and he kind of pitched his way up through their system. And then in late July, right before the trading deadline, they the Mets traded him to excuse me, the Mets traded as Dribble Cabrera to the Phillies and they got him in exchange. And he posted a decent uh line with Binghamton. He pitched a he posted a four point oh three ERA in thirty eight innings, allowing thirty one hits, walking ten and striking at forty two. But after the season ended, he was gonna pitch in the uh, Dominican Winter League. And he never made it because he had to undergo Tommy John surgery. So that sucks. But Kilmay as a pitcher um, doesn't suck. His fastball sits low to mid-90s, tops out 97. Has some sink and glove side movement. Very nice. Um, and his curveball. It is like a plus curveball. Um, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it, it it's is. lovely. I'm a sucker I, for curveballs. I I like sliders are fine, but I love a good curveball. Agreed, agreed. And his, you know, the the depth of of the break of his curveball, the twelve six, just straight up, straight down, just very nice. And then he also kind of throws a changeup that is kind of eh. So 
given the fact that he's a little older, and of course he's going to be coming back from Tommy John surgery uh, in 20, 2020, he's probably going to be a reliever, a fastball, curveball guy. But I mean, it's still it's still an exciting profile. It's more exciting than literally all the relievers they've traded for <laughs> over the past two years. Could you imagine if they got pieces that were more akin to kill me in like even half of these trades in which they traded a better asset than S. Oh yeah, had? I would be yelling on Twitter about how they need like another two pitchers right now. Yeah. It's 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 like they, they like they suddenly had an epiphany and said, Wait, we can trade for things that aren't fringy right handed relievers in the yeah, upper like minors. The slider types who Whoa my, my brain <laughs> My bean it, like I, it was a like this is a fun profile. It's a shame he got hurt. I'm excited to see him come back, and hopefully he's doesn't get Marcus Molina. True, well, Steve. I, if you dropped him in a bullpen right now, what do you what do you think he, he would look like, like numbers wise? You think he's already like pretty much ready to go as like a reliever, assuming uh, stuff bounces back to where it bounces back to where it was pre TJ. If if we put him in a bullpen right now, I think he'd be terrible because he can't pitch. But God damn it. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't resist. But in 2020, um, I think that assuming that the stuff comes back as exactly it is right now, he could definitely at least thrive in a major league bullpen. Yeah. And the fastball, you know, mid 90s, you figure maybe it, it plays up a little bit more into the high 90s. Mm-hmm. And his curveball is just really good. You know, he doesn't need that that change up. And he's only, you know, he'd only be facing a couple of batters in a game. Just give it your all, air the fastball out, and uh, drop the curve. Yep. Yeah, Which I is... think he's pretty much already a uh, like like a good reliever. Like if the stuff comes all the way back. Like the only player they traded for who might be this good is Eric Hanhold, and I don't think he is anywhere near <laughs> as good in the no, no, I don't think like, so. And none, you guys of all have a... none of the other relievers even come close. Yeah. Did you Unless guys you all like... have uh, Colome above Dunn before the trade? Colome above Dunn. Um, I don't remember. I don't think I had a list, but thinking about it in retrospect, I would not have because I don't think I, don't think I would have because of the health. Yeah, I think that the um, I think that Dunn has more room for growth. Because he has, you know, he does have that curveball and that's and that changeup that's kind of, eh. whereas Kilame he only really has a fastball and yeah. curve. You know, his his changeup I've heard is really trash. I mean, he kind of he does throw it, but you know, not really. Yeah. So I think that as as starters, Dunn has you know like more room for growth and yeah. has a better outlook. But then as reliever, I think that. Um, Kilame is probably the better of the two. Yeah, that's where I landed on it. That um, I had Kilome or Kilame above Dunn solely because I think they're both relievers, and I just think Kilame is a much better reliever with uh, the stuff that's currently constituted. I think but, that's fair. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, moving on now to number eight is another guy associated with Tommy John surgery, and that is Thomas Zapucky. And he was drafted in 2015. He was the fifth, fifth round pick. And he signed for a little bit over slot value. 
um, at $375,000. He threw a couple of innings for the GCL Mets that year. And then in 2016, he was basically one of the Mets' hottest minor league players. He was dominant in the Appalachian League. He was dominant at Brooklyn. And then everything just went to crap uh, when he was promoted to Columbia the next year. His stats on the surface were not bad. He posted a 2.7 on ERA, allowing 24 hits, walking 10, and striking at 27. But um, middle of the year, July 2nd, uh, excuse me, July 6th, he felt some tightness in his forearm. He was removed from the start. He was put on the seven-day disabled list with soreness. And, of course, that with the Mets always means Tommy John. So he spent the entire year last year rehabbing from it and he should be back this year and if he comes back and the stuff is what it was we're talking about you know in this especially in the system as it will be next year we're talking about possibly top three guy in the system I mean, his fastballs in the low to mid 90s you know he, he could air it out as high as 97 and had a lot of movement because of his delivery it was like a low sidearm almost Curveball was at least a plus. Yeah, that um, pitch was great. It yeah. was more than a plus. Like that, that pitch is <laughs> stupid. That that's the reason why even if he gets Marcos Molina, I still think he has a big league future. Like a lefty with that kind of breaking ball, it's just not easy to find. No. Nope. Yeah, I mean that really everything is just dependent on him not being Marcos Molina. Of course. Right. And, and I, I think... find it kind of funny that all three of like i said at the beginning we all did our stuff independently i find it funny that literally in every single one of us in our little kind of opinions we cited marcos molina <laughs> as you know the cautionary tale here yeah yep. and i think arm action i think the fear or at least like thomas sapuki was my stephen valines before stephen valines because of those stupid k to walk ratios um but the one fear was that he'd never be a starter because they just didn't let him throw any innings and now he's going to be 22 and still hasn't thrown any innings. Um, but now I wonder, uh, like uh, that would have concerned me more, but now I wonder if he'd be an effective multi-inning relief guy instead of like just a closer or a starter who doesn't really work as a starter. But with the rise of the multi-inning reliever, I'm more, I, I think there's a more viable future for him. Like, not saying he's Joss Hader, but he could fit into that same mold. Um, I don't know if you guys agree with that. If he can't stick as a starter, if he could be that elite multi-inning guy. I mean, I can see that. Yeah, that's actually kind of, I've never really given that much thought. But when you when you say it like that, and then you think of the comparison to Andrew Miller, they're both kind of that, you know, lowish arm slot lefty with, you know, Miller has that, amazing slider and Zabucky mm-hmm. has that amazing curveball there there are definitely some similarities to it mm-hmm. I mean of course we need to see him I'm excited to see him come back because I think he's very easily the third best prospect in the system if he was healthy last year mm-hmm. um so yeah with like even a reasonably good system or even a reason sorry even a reasonably good season um that didn't end <laughs> the year before mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, he'd definitely be up there. He's... I mean, yeah, it's it's a thin system, but 
yet he's still ranked eight. So I guess that's a testament to yep. how good the stuff is. Yeah. Like know, next coming... year's... Oh, we'll talk about this later. Never mind. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, well, coming in at seven now is Louis Guillaume. And he is a guy that everyone is probably is probably well known to everybody at this point. And he is one of the best, if not the best, uh, defensive shortstop in professional baseball in the entire country, in the entire world. Um, and Dalton Simmons has something to say about that. <laughs> I was I was a kid, and I saw Ray Odonez play, and obviously. He is the best. He had the single best season by shortstop defensively in baseball mm-hmm. history. And nobody is Ordonez. But I can group Guillaume up there with with Ordonez. And guys like Andrew Clint Simmons, um, Danzy Swanson, Freddie Galvis, Escobar, Alcides Escobar, you know, guys like that. And the bat is... Not bad, I'm gonna say, but problematic in in his approach, and he's very bat uh, dependent. Mm-hmm. But you know, he's that that's just just because of his defense. That's a guy that you know could linger for another ten, fifteen years on a team. Yep. And like we were saying earlier, with with pitchers, back end pitchers, that's a valuable valuable thing. That's a pretty good outcome for a minor leaguer. No, I absolutely. I think. I've always said that baseball has the best highlights, and the hi- best the highlights are all defensive highlights. And Giorme is is the kind of defensive player that I want to turn on my TV and see, or wake up in the morning and pull up MLB.com, which is truly a terrible website. So you know how good it must be if I'm going to MLB.com to watch some highlights. Um, and and, and I unfortunately I don't think the bat ever gets to a point where it is viable as a starter. Like, it, he's better. He's better than he was last year. Like that's for sure. Um, Agreed. And maybe he's a second division starter on the the equivalent of the rebuilding Padres in ten years or something. But uh, realistically, he's a backup middle infielder that we always are are happy to see play, but also cringe when he's up in a big spot. Yeah, I think I've referred to him as the uh, the type of utility infielder that you're like not upset when they get shifted into the game for defense. Anybody that's upset if he gets shifted into the game for defense yeah, does not know idiot. what they're looking at. <laughs> Can we stop playing him at third base, please? Like it kind why? of defeats the purpose, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> it does. Like take this guy who gets the best jumps I've ever seen on balls. It's insane. And put him in a place where that doesn't really matter. And it, like his hands are are just stupid. It, it's truly incredible. Yeah, no, he's like a wizard. Like he is. And it's a shame now he has no. I mean, it's a good thing that he doesn't have a spot because the Mets actually built depth for once. But now he doesn't have a spot on the opening day bench. He'll he'll get some time, I'm sure, when someone gets hurt. And we have like three or four guys in depth now, and we all know that that is not enough. For like the Mets. LSS. Never enough for the Met month. Play play the six at the six. Nick six. Well, speaking of six, we're up to our sixth prospect, and that is Sharia Newton, who is um, new to the list. He shot up everybody's lists this year. Um, 
he was given a $50,000 bonus the same year that uh, Andres Jimenez got his and the aforementioned Gregory Guerrero got his. Press F. And uh, he's good. Um, I mean, <laughs> his yeah, he's swing. Good. He's good at this game. His, his swing, the, the power that it creates, the amount of torque that he gets, the violence in his swing, it's like Vladimir Guerrero-ian. That's a new verb, Guerrero-ian. Guerrero, you can say that ten times fast. Guerrero-ian. <laughs> um, it's easy plus, you know, bro, anyway. I mean, and, and even in, in game, you know, when he's able to connect, like he's smashing the ball. And he, he's only 6'4, 180. So it's not hard to imagine that he fills in a little bit more. And assuming that it's good weight, you know, athletic weight, that he increases that power. And that's pretty crazy. Um, defensively, he's a shortstop. Um, he also has. Experience playing third, also. Uh, he's a good shortstop. Um, if he if he fills in, like I was saying before, he might have to you know shift off of it and go to either second or third. But there's there's still plenty of time for that. But kind of more importantly, I guess, is that right now he is not lost in the crowd, but he is one of many very good prospects that the Mets have in the minor league system at the bottom and. Getting him time at shortstop is going to be a little difficult because Ronnie Mauricio is basically on the same level at him as him. Getting him time at third base is going to be a little difficult because Mark Vientos is at the same level as him. Uh, second base is open now with the trade of uh, Luis Santana. So, I mean, they could put him there, but I feel like that would be a little bit of a waste of his talent. But he is, you know, he is a, a crazy athletic, crazy strong, crazy swing kid. Yeah. Uh, how concerned are you about the swing and miss? There is a decent amount of swing and miss. And his, like I was saying, like he, he creates a lot of power with just like the torque in his swing. Like he just kind of coils up and just, just wham. Especially when he's um, batting from the from the left side, I don't know. I mean, he's still very young, so really, it, it's all going to depend on his ability to kind of adjust when he starts going up the minor league ladder and seeing better, you know, breaking balls and guys that can hit their spots and stuff better. So it's kind of hard to say right now. But I mean, it's not something that we should just ignore. But at the same time, I don't think that it's going to be like. It's not going to be like a Vicente Lupo situation where you have this guy with like crazy power and then he gets to uh, low A and then all of a sudden he's just destroyed by like halfway decent breaking pitches. And I think there's also room for optimism because he's not only 19 and super raw, but he's also a switch hitter, which perhaps slows down his his ability to develop that bat, bat control a little bit more. Um, the dude's built like a freaking wide receiver. This is a, your athletic profile to dream on that's also already performing at the level he's at, which is, I mean, rookie ball where the stats are meaningless, but the dude mashed. Yeah, and also walked a lot, um, which I think takes some of the fear out of the, uh, mm -hmm. the swing and miss, you know. 
Hey, if you get like a three true outcomes guy who just has a super high exit velos and manages high babips, that switch hits and plays third base. That's uh, yeah, that's a hell of an outcome. <laughs> yeah, that's a, quite a player. I actually, and and you guys can tell me I'm an idiot for this. I while I put Mauricio above him eventually, I definitely went back and forth for a while, and had and I might actually like Newton more. Uh, I don't disagree. Yeah, okay. I think that's definitely within the fudge factor. Um, yeah. I mean, I think all three infield prospects that we're about to discuss, short of the top two, are kind of within that fudge factor where you can make a case for all three. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Well, next up on that uh, grouping is Ronnie Mauricio, who is number five on our list. And he was one of the top rookies available during the 2017 to 2018 international signing period. And the Mets signed him for uh, $2.1 million, which was, uh, until last year, the club record. And uh, he's been pretty good uh, since. And he was promoted last year to Kingsport at the end of the season. Uh, he got into a couple games. And, you know, when, when a 17-year-old is... When a 17-year-old from, you know, the islands, from the, from the Caribbean, is making a stateside debut, um, that's, it's always a good thing. And it's not that I'm down on Mauricio, but I'm not excited for Mauricio as well as, as much as I am for these other guys because the upside is very high, but because he's so raw and see, he's so young, there's just a lot of variance in what he could possibly become. And that, you know, it's not exciting to me. Um, you know, give it another year and we'll see like, you know, where he starts going, and to me, he'll be uh, a lot more exciting. I mean, I think I agree with all of that, and unlike Vientos and Newton, he hasn't put up the stats yet, which makes it harder for someone like me who's just looking at stats mostly to get super excited. I mean, on the other hand, he might be Andres Menes with more power in three years, which is huge, so... I, don't, I mean, there's not much to add. We just He's got a projectable body. He's young for his level and holding his own. Mm -hmm. It's a wait and see to see if he hits what could be an absolutely stupendous upside. Or could be nothing because, like, Kenny Hernandez was this once. Wilmer Flores <laughs> was this once. Wilmer Flores is a good outcome for Ronnie Mauricio. Like, that's a, yep. an above-average outcome. It's not what yep. you want to see. But, well, like... This is the Mets system, right? This is all their stuff's low, and all their all their exciting pieces are low and could be nothing, but also could be amazing. Kenny, have anything to add? I mean, not really. He's miles away. Yep, yeah, it's exciting, kind of. Um, if you really squint, you can see a real good player. But you know, there's a reason we try not to get excited over guys who are you know in the complex leagues. I mean, it yeah. certainly sounds like we were more excited to talk about Newton than we were about Mauricio. Yep. Yeah, writing writing his profile up, it was just kind of like, eh. like I, I have fun doing this, obviously, or I wouldn't be doing it. And just when I got to him, I was just like, all right, here's what he did. Here's the stats. Here's kind of a breakdown of his profile offensively and defensively and just kind of like, eh. Like, like look, like the people who do the big league-wide prospect lists and have multiple employees to get looks at people. 
all uh, admit they are kind of shrugging their shoulders with these these guys. Yeah, it's just that he is. It's, it's, it's what it is. It's just too. Yeah, he's just too young, really. Well, uh, coming in at number four is a guy that is kind of the opposite. He's a kind of guy that we really know exactly what he's going to be, and that is David Peterson. He was drafted uh, in the first round of the 2017 draft out of uh, University of Oregon, and he pitched um, okay there in his first year, a couple of years, but he was really good in 2017, had a lot of helium, and that's when the Mets picked him. Limited time in Brooklyn that year, and really this past season was the first year when he kind of was allowed to, you know, was allowed to go. And of course, because it's the Mets, he has debuted delayed a couple of weeks because of an injury. But when he got on the field in uh, Columbia, he was really good, as you would expect, you know, an advanced college pitcher to be. And he's promoted to St. Lucie mid-June, struggled a little bit at first. Uh, they said he had some dead arm. But he did end the year strong. And he is kind of a... I don't want to say boring pitcher, but uh, from the left side, you know, about an average-ish fastball for a left-hander. He sits about 89 to 92. He tops out 94. He does have a pretty good slider. That's his main uh, go-to strikeout pitch. And a kind of fringy uh, change-up. And, you know, like we were talking about Kay before, he was a guy that was kind of drafted to move up the system quickly, and the Mets metsed, and he really hasn't. Nope. What's funny about Peterson, though, being moved as slowly as he did, is it's not even like he missed a year due to injury. He's just like a level behind because reasons. Yeah, I mean, he had an ingrown toenail in Brooklyn when he was in Brooklyn, which is why he only pitched, like, three innings and then uh, I don't think that the injury that he had starting the year this uh, this past season was ever disclosed but obviously it wasn't anything catastrophic because he got on the field and he was decent it just really was a lack of you know being aggressive with him which is like funny like again I, I watched a couple of his starts on um on, online uh in Columbia and like you know, it's not exactly like a professional broadcast, and you can tell he's, like, two levels too low. Like, effortlessly backfooting guys. Um, 19-year-old kids are just taking, like, horrible swings against him because they've never seen a breaking ball, like a Pac-10 breaking ball. Um, just, like, no reason to keep him down that long. I mean, even still, like, I, I thought my impression was that Peterson was supposed to be a little bit more than this like he was supposed to be better than a back-end stuff lefty but be becoming that is a fine outcome with this pick and he if it's moved quickly which the Mets haven't for some reason I'm a little concerned that the results are so meh right like an advanced A at 23 for an advanced arm that came out of the Pac-12 that dominated in the Pac-12 for a while you should be striking out more than 7.6 guys per nine innings. Right? Even if you're not going to be a high strikeout guy eventually, you should be better than that. And maybe I'm crazy there. He still put up a FIP under three, mostly because he only gave up 0.1 homers per nine. But like, 
the 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 oomph factor seems missing. Yeah, he's kind. Of, he even since day one when he was drafted, he was kind of a. I don't really know how to put it, like a, a results over excitement kind of pick, if that makes sense. I, 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 mean, I get draft- that, but even even as the results <laughs> over excitement pick, if we're trying to project him forward, like if he gets to the majors and he's the results over excitement guy, that's fine. But if you're going to be a results over excitement guy in the majors, you should still be generating some sort of excitement in the minors. If your stuff Ooh. is good enough to do that in the majors, you should be striking out guys in the minors, and he's not. At yeah, it's a bit of a red flag. Um, well, he he did suffer, you know, from dead arm for most of his time in St. Lucie, so I mean that might be a factor. Mm-hmm. But also, I think mitigating that a bit is the fact that his um, his fastball it just has so much sink to it that he might end up being, you know, he might be a guy that was good enough in college to strike out, you know, twenty guys in a game, which he did do that one time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, against more advanced hitters, the strikeouts are just not going to come. But he he has those sinkers to kind of fall back on. Um, yeah, the one thing I'll say about it is like, um, yeah, he didn't miss many bats, but he really didn't get hit very hard at all either. Um, I mean, you look at like homers per nine, he was at um, 0.15 in Columbia, 0.13 in uh, Port St. Lucie. Um, limits base runners, high, high, high ground ball rate. Um, what was it? Do you have it in front of you? I think it was something like 64% or something. Yeah, it was 66.7 in Columbia, 62.9 in Port St. Lucie. Yeah. I mean, when you say like a a sinker ball pitcher, a ground ball pitcher, that's usually guys that are like 50 plus or so. So, I mean, a a 60, a, a rate in the sixties is like. I don't want to say yeah. elite ground ball rates, but those are really good. So I am mildly concerned that he's not missing bats um, at levels that he's probably too good for, or um, levels that he's already faced competition that's maybe comparable, you know, in college. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also not really giving up much contact at all or much hard contact at all. So I'll, I'll give him a pass on it for now, I guess. I mean, once again, we're we're hamstrung in this evaluation by the Mets messing it. Yeah, yep. like, I would have really loved, have loved to have seen him in Double A last year. <laughs> at least Double A, he should have gotten a couple. He probably should start. be starting in Triple A this year with um an eye towards get, get, getting him big league time. Yep. So and I'd feel a lot better about having Jason Vargas as a fifth starter. Yep. <laughs> well, coming at number three on our list is kind of a guy that's the exact opposite. Um, a guy that is really exciting, and that is Mark Vientos. Oh, yeah. He was drafted in the second round of the 2017 draft, and a lot of, you know, evaluators and scouts, whatever, were expecting him to actually go in the first round, but he missed some time in his senior year of high school because of a quad injury, and, you know, that limited him to only 26 games that spring, so he kind of fell and plus, he also had a commitment to the University of Miami, um, which is, you know, a big baseball school. But the Mets picked him, and they were able to sign him actually pretty quick. Uh, they gave him a $1.5 million bonus, which is about $500,000 over the slot value. And he kind of was all right um, when he played in the GCL that year. In... Um, 
last year, 2018. He was really good. Uh, he hit 287, 389, 489 in 60 games. He walked 37 times. He struck out 43 times. And he slugged 11 home runs, which was almost triple the amount that anyone else on the Kingsport Mets did. And it was tied for fourth in the Appalachian League, along with Wander Franco and Nolan Gorman. And those two guys are consensus top, you know, 50 at least prospects. And I kind of, maybe I'm biased, but I kind of don't see why Vientos is not in the conversation with those guys. I think that they're both better than him, but I don't think that it's a slam dunk that they're better than him, especially Nolan Gorman. I definitely agree on Gorman because he strikes out so much. Right, I mean... Power, though. <laughs> right, but, it, but it's also not... Vientos has a, a ton of power as well. Exactly, yeah, Vientos hit for almost as many homers, and Gorman struck out almost forty percent. Well, of I the mean, time. Gorman's also a year younger, um, but, but barely. The thing is, just playing devil's advocate. Not I mean, Vientos was born in December, the the middle of December. Yeah, so, he I mean, was basically he's... a. Um... I think he's only actually like six like months or five months draft pick age, but yeah. in the twenty seventeen draft. Five months. There you go. Yeah, there we go. Um, but I mean, compared to Gorman, yeah, they're both raw plus power with swings that can be a little long and stiff. But that's you know what they that's what lets the power get into games. And as third basemen, they are you know not seen as great um, at all, but kind of adequate. And you know, I don't know. I I don't. I don't know if it's just me being a Mets fan and being particularly high on Vientos to begin with, not seeing why he doesn't get, you know, the kind of same accolades. But I think that he's a guy that next year, assuming that he has a decent season in either Brooklyn or Columbia, wherever they decide to send him, I think he's a guy that can shoot up those national lists that really ignored him completely. Ironically, I'd be really surprised if he wasn't a top 100 guy next year, I think. Hey, mm-hmm. Keith Law already has some top 100, so yeah, has him at congrats, 60. Keith, you did something right. <laughs> well, we don't, he doesn't uh, count. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually, so I'll admit that I I kind of slept on Vientos when I was putting my list together, and then I was when I was doing my rookie draft for my fantasy dynasty league, I was looking for a third base prospect, and I couldn't convince myself to to get behind Gorman because I kept coming back to uh, Vientos and the fact that he walks almost as much as he strikes out. He still hit for significant power. Like this is a really ex- he made some really exciting developments last year. He trimmed his strikeout rate, improved his ISO, improved almost doubled his walk rate. This is an exci- a really exciting prospect that we should all be eager to see. And then of course I missed him because I over overestimated how long I could wait, and I was sad, but. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes and even with a lot of his strikeouts and this is just from getting you know this is just very subjective from getting a look at him I don't have the numbers in front of me I don't actually know if the numbers exist for this because you know minor league numbers are kind of spotty when you wanted to get into the nitty gritty but I feel like a lot of his strikeouts are not swing and misses but they're kind of him letting you know balls in the zone go because he's waiting for something that he could drive. You'd say like the Brandon Nimmo problem, right? Right, similar, similar. Um, his, I was, I forget who it was, one of the commenters, but we were talking about his swing, and 
comparing it to Jared Kalenic. And Kalenic has a very like smooth, silky swing. And I, I forget exactly how I phrased Vientos' swing, but it's like very deliberate. Like it's a very, it's, it's a bit long, but he's swinging at the pitches that he knows that he could hit and he can drive. And which is kind of exciting, I guess, is that a lot of those pitches are, you know, pitches that are kind of to the outside. He's actually a lot of power to the opposite field, which is good, I guess, you know. I mean, that 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 alone really excites me because I feel like a lot of times uh, people have always phrased the the uh, on-base percentage approach as just letting hittable pitchers go by. No, it's always been about knowing what you can hit and waiting for it when you can, and then once you get to two strikes, defending yourself. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he, at 19, already has a good grasp or, or from the stats and from what we've read, uh, a very good grasp of what he can get to, what he can't, and an approach that lets him, that in, a, in an approach in which he maximizes his swings at what he knows he can get to, that's really encouraging. Like, this is the reason Brandon Nimmo is as, was as good as he is, because he does this extremely well. And if Vientos is already doing this at 19 with probably better raw talent than Nimmo, that, and at a more important position, it's exciting. And especially against competition that's, you know, still significantly older than him. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, Steve, do you think the swing and miss becomes more of a problem as he gets higher up the ladder? Um, Just because of the length in the swing? No, because I think that he'll, he will learn to, you know, shorten up a little bit. Gotcha. That's not something that I really saw at all. I mean, it, granted, it was like four hole at bats and a little bit of um, batting practice. But he's like you said he's he's still just very young he is kind of precocious right he's a couple of years out of high school and something that i've read it might have been in like the you know the tennessee tribune tennessee journal whatever it was you know local tennessee paper from kingsport but they were saying that you know a kind of switch turned on in him when they promoted uh kalenic to to the team and kind of vientos had that competition and i think that you know he i'm not saying he's like a guy that's lazy or anything like that but if you know this a switch turned on for him to you know want to prove that he is the better prospect of the two or the better hitter of the two whatever you want to say um you know there's no reason to think that when he gets promoted and he starts seeing you know better breaking pitches and and guys that have better commands and everything like that that he's not going to start you know that instinct is going to just disappear you know there's no reason to think that it's you know once once he starts going up levels you know you're going to he's a guy that I think will feel like beholden to improve himself and one of those things will be you know shortening up on his swing Maybe, you know, not taking all those pitches and sometimes just doing the Don Smith thing and just kind of hitting junk pitches just for singles just because, you know, instead of just letting them go by for strikes. I mean, we'll see. Obviously, there's still plenty mm-hmm. of time. But I think that, yeah, he hasn't hit his ceiling and that there's still a lot more room for improvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm very pumped for Vientos, uh, hopefully, to get the full season next year. I think it'll be exciting to watch him and Mauricio and Newton move in this kind of unit together up the ladder and even maybe 
Alvarez or Consuegra, I'm again butchering that, I'm sorry, catch up with them <laughs> when, by the time they get to full season or whatever. Like, that's an exciting group of guys. Yeah, it's assuming that they'll go to um, Columbia. It's definitely right. not a good year for Columbia not to be coming up north to Lakewood. Nope. Very annoying. They do very good video, though. They do. They have they do. the best. They definitely have the best. It's like uh, near production. I have some mm-hmm. qualms with the uh, the camera angle they use, but uh, other than not that, a, not as big a deal tough. for evaluating hitters, I guess compared yeah, to pitching. And no. I can imagine them keeping Newton a level below, just so he can still play short, or Mauricio yeah. a level below, just so he yeah. can still whatever. But, How would you feel about that, by the way, um, if they decided to leave Newton in Brooklyn all year? I would be happy about that because then we'd get a lot more looks at him. I mean, that's a good point, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I, yeah. Maybe I'm crazy again, but I'd leave Mauricio and let Newton and Vientos go up. I mean, I think that he should definitely he should definitely start the year in Colombia. Yeah. And then let's say he's struggling or just it's just whatever, not getting enough playing time, whatever the problem is. He could always be sent back down when Brooklyn yeah. starts. I mean, it's two months, give or take, before they start in Coney Island, so... Just don't keep them in the complexes at all, please, Mets. Please. <laughs> yeah, no, that would not be a smart move. Please, Mets. Well, uh, our number two prospect was a guy that impressed in the complex and then a couple of years ago and um, made his debut and really has impressed ever since, and that is Andres Jimenez. And he was signed, he was one of the best rookies in the 2015 to 2016 draft class, and the Mets signed him for just north of a million dollars. And he was absolutely dominant in the DSL, where numbers don't matter. But when in 2017, when extended spring training started and everything, they really were impressed with what he was doing, and they signed him to the Columbia Fireflies. And he more than held his own against you know guys that are that were way older than him. Uh, he hit. 265, 346, 349 in 92 games with them in 2017. And then over the winter last year, he spent some time at a Barwis uh, strength and conditioning camp. And when he showed up to spring training this past year, he was lighter. He's more athletic. Speed went from, you know, being above average to a bona fide plus. And he started the year at St. Lucie. He was the third youngest player. And he hit really impressive uh 282 348 432 in 85 games and he was promoted to Binghamton and at the end of July and he didn't hit as good uh there but again as a as one of the youngest players in the league hitting 277 344 358 is pretty good um he's a guy that he has potential of being a 300 hitter and that's really exciting and defensively, he is, you know, he has all the tools to be a plus um, defensive shortstop. He's quick reacting to balls in play. He has good instincts. He's a first, uh, fast first step. He's smooth. He has good range. He has a really strong arms, strong arm. And he kind of, you know, has one of those, all those intangibles that you look at in a good player. He's a mature, he's a hard worker, he's a leader, he's always looking to learn. I know this is kind of stupid, but one of the most remarkable things I think about Jimenez, who is 18 or, or 19, excuse me. Uh, I think that... he just turned 20. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's born in September, I think. Yeah, 
to age 20, 153 days. So there you go. Like a young so, 20. He's a young 20 who only recently came stateside. He speaks pretty fluent English, which I think is a testament to how much work he is willing to put into just not even just baseball, but just improving himself. And that, you know, then when you translate that kind of F ethic into baseball, I mean, look how he transformed himself into a, a plus runner, everything like that. You know, when he wants to concentrate on something and get better at it, you know, this kid is able to do that. Like, realistic... oh, go ahead, go ahead. Realistically, like, well, well, what's like the outcome you expect from Jimenez? It's like best case scenario, you're going to get, I don't know, 10 homer pop. 30-ish steals, plus shortstop defense, a 280 average, fill in the OBP and the slugging based on the power I mentioned. Like, that's pretty close to Gene Segura. Which, yep. who, who is I one think of he's the, a better shortstop than Segura. Than Gene Segura, fine. Like, Gene Segura is one of the, what, best eight-ish prospects? Hey, prospects. Shortstops yep. in baseball? Yeah, at least Short, back then. Yeah. Shortstop's pretty deep these days, or deeper than it used to be. So maybe not top eight, but that's a really good player. And even if you're there's not like Corey Seager, Francisco Lindor, Manny Machado level shortstop star upside here because he just doesn't have that kind of power and probably never will. Uh, a guy who can swipe 30 bases, hit for a little pop, and maintain a good average while playing an above average shortstop is a tremendous player. Mm -hmm. And... I'll be interested to see if, if Jimenez is playing well down the stretch and Rosario hasn't progressed. Does Rosario get replaced at some point? Like, if the Mets are good... Entirely possible. Like, I, could, I can imagine that happening, and I'm definitely the low guy on Rosario. And I think I've always been the low guy on Rosario. Um, I can imagine a scenario when Jimenez displaces him down the stretch. It is possible. It definitely is possible. And eventually, the Mets are going to have to decide, you know, at most, they can give Jimenez this year and part of next year. But assuming he keeps up on the current trajectory that he's at, mm -hmm. he's going to be in AAA and more than ready next season. Yep. So in the near future, they're going to have to decide what they want to do with Jimenez and Rosario. I mean, one of them becomes trade bait or something, or or maybe Lowry or Cano falls off a cliff and that opens up a natural hole. Maybe McNeil isn't legit. Blasphemy, I know. That opens up a spot. Like, having too many good shortstops isn't a problem. No, and if nothing else, the Mets always are in the market for a fastball slider reliever, so... Oh, good, good, great. Yeah, might be able to get one or two of those <laughs> be able to get Jimenez or Rosario. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, that leaves us with our number one prospect, and that is Tim Tebow. I thought it was Gavin Sacchini. Oh, no, no. But I don't think he ever was. He never was one of our top, uh, rated as a top prospect, the top prospect for us. No, he never was. No, no never. Why would you? <sighs> we put him in the top 10 too many times, as is. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even. Did I include him on the list of guys to like this year, keep I an eye know. out? I don't I, even think I did. Maybe uh, I think he was in, in my the, top in the... thirty, but it was really just because I was running out of names. Yep, yep. I think you included <laughs> him. No, you did include him on uh on the list. Oh, I, I mean, don't know. It's a guy people know. 
guy people yeah. think to be. Yeah, with. he is a guy that for people to know. But Peter Alonso is a guy that everyone should know. And if they don't know him, I, um, you're living under a rock. He was drafted in the 2016 draft, the second round out of the University of Florida. And all he did was mash there. A lot of injuries, unfortunately, but they were freak injuries. A lot of broken foots, um, broken hands, broken nose, things like that. But it obviously didn't really affect him. And um, was drafted. He made his debut with Brooklyn in 2016. And he would have been an all-star that year in the New York Penn League. He hit 321, 382, 587. And, you know, if you've been to Keyspan Park, you know how hard it is to hit for power there with the ocean literally right on top of you. And he he mashed. But unfortunately, he broke his finger. So he wasn't able to play for the entire season and he missed playing in the All-Star game there. But 2017 is promoted to St. Lucie. And again... A couple of days into the season, he got hit and was put on the disabled list. He broke his hand and missed basically a month of baseball. And when he finally got back, he spent a couple of weeks just kind of working off the rust and really adjusting, I guess, to professional baseball. Because after working out with Chad Kreuter, the manager, and you know other coaches in St. Lucie, to just kind of refine the swing, work on his approach, work on the mental aspects of the game, he had a monster second half. And that basically transformed him from, you know, back-end prospect that had some potential that people were like, you know, okay, to a top-10 prospect in the system last year. And then this year, obviously, he has done nothing but, you know, dominate. He hit 314, um, 440, 537, 15 home runs with Binghamton. And then he was promoted to the 51s. And it took him a couple of weeks to adjust and get acclimated. His strikeout rate did go up a bit. Um, highest it's ever been as a professional. But he still hit well above average. He hit uh, 260, 355, 585 with 21 home runs. So between AA and AAA, the two highest levels in the minor leagues, he hit 285, 395, 579 with 36 combined home runs. And he uh, really impressed on, I guess, the, the national stage, let's say, uh, during the future game, futures game. He smashed that, that home run that he's kind of known for now. Um, he basically broke StatCast. In the one-off his, Nate Pearson? Yes. He, he oh, that was the All-Stars game. He hit a 400-foot home run that traveled at an exit velocity of 113.6 with a launch angle of 46 degrees, which yeah, is something never that's been... not supposed to be able to happen. No. Yeah. I mean, that was a 104-mile-an-hour heater. He just, like, one of the concerns we had with Alonso over the last couple of years was can he handle velocity? That's, Pearson throws as hard as literally anyone. That's a 104-mile-an-hour fastball he turns around and launched. I think he hit that one out to right center too. It's like <sighs> it's big boy season, guys. Yeah, I mean that actually wasn't a Pearson home run. Um, that wasn't. Yeah, okay. that no. was at the, the okay, that was at the, that was at the yeah. AFL 
uh, star uh, all star game. Oh, okay, yeah, that yeah, was the piercing right, one. Right, right. Sorry, sorry. But he broke oh, wrong again, national broke stage, but also a national stage. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. it that was just the second time that he broke Statcast. Uh, that oh, one. Was... Oh, you're talking about the one at the the futures game before right. the all. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. The second one was the fastest home run to ever be hit off of a fastball um, since Rafael Devers hit one off of Aroldis Chapman off of a 102.8 mile per hour fastball. This one is a 103 mile per hour fastball that Pearson threw. Either way, it's impressive. It's not like the gun was hot or anything. Like, this no. is the AFL. Like, they have stat cast data. Uh, and this is what Pearson is known for. Pearson is known yeah, for throwing having gas. probably the best stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, in the minors right now. If you could just stay on the mound, but yep. And really, Alonso is not exactly like an Adam Dunn kind of player, where he's going to hit for a crazy low average. He's got he the is, body. Uh, oh yeah, he definitely has the body and the power. But I think that you know his ability to hit for average gets a little underrated because of that fact. I'm not saying that he's going to be like a 300 hitter. But I think that he could be a guy that hits like 260, 275, which is a far cry from Dunn's like 200. I agree with everything you're saying. Yep. I mean, I think I wrote this in the blurb. I wanted the blurb to just be dongs with like 100 Zs because that's basically the profile here, right? It is. He does hit big dongs, guys. Huge dongs. (laughs) Bigly dongs. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that he does not do is field very well. And do you think, do you guys think that that is going to become an issue in the major leagues where his defensive yips are going to take away from the playing time that he gets and the, you know, dongs that he could hit? It's first base. So. Uh, I mean, I'm not really my, worried about it. <laughs> my understanding is that the worst part of his first his defense is pop ups, right? And like pop ups to the first base side do happen. I'm sure it'll be like a high profile time where he drops it. Everyone's like, oh, he can't play defense. But in terms of scooping the ball and actually fielding the position, he's not Eric Hosmer. I can't believe I just said a nice thing about Eric Hosmer. Um, <laughs> he's not good, but he's not a butcher. Right, like he'll be acceptable, and if he's hitting thirty home runs and batting two eighty, you live with a dropped pop up or two every season. Like priorities. I think that will be more than just a drop pop up or two, <laughs> but I agree that with the bat you just ignore it because it's first base. Like yeah, <laughs> tell him wash. It's incredibly hard. <laughs> I made a joke recently about left field actually not being very hard. I do not. I do not think like there are lots of bad fielding first baseman that you could just kind of shove in left field. I don't think Alonso. Oh no, of course not. No, I do not. Think the joke was in reference to Jeff McNeil playing left field. Like, um, I mean, it's if actually... Lucas Duda can do it, then why can't Peter could Alonso? Lucas Duda really do it though? Could he? <laughs> what is a left fielder? <laughs> It's if just it's the Daniel Murphy. stands out in the left field, then Lucas Duda was a left fielder. <laughs> Remember that, that that opening day in Miami where Daniel Murphy dropped that fly ball on the warning track and that lost <laughs> Johan Santana the game? 
Can we can we not do that again, please? Yeah, that was that basically kind of encapsulated the Mets of that era. Oh God! Before Daniel Murphy became Babe Ruth incarnate. Immediately after leaving. Well, we have Robinson Cano now, so we don't need him anymore. It's true. All right. Well, that is the top twenty-five list. Um, are there any guys that you think are going to be risers in the twenty nineteen season? Guys that you know are on the list right now, and you think are going to shoot up it, or guys that you know aren't on the list, just barely either, either barely didn't make it, or are not even in consideration. Do you guys have any sleepers that you think are going to rise? Go first, Ken. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if um, Francisco Alvarez gets put on the, the super quick track and uh, people are talking about him in a very similar way to how people were talking about Mauricio this year. It's possible. Um, the, the... You can definitely see that happening. Although, again, you know, we don't exactly know a ton about, you know, recent IFA signings that uh, are yet to play anywhere. Uh, in terms of the guys like on the top 25, the, the health ones are the most interesting to me, right? So that's mm-hmm. Sabuki, uh, Lindsay, and Humphreys. If they're all healthy, uh, like Sabuki just needs to go back to what he was. Humphreys needs to establish that he can do it at a higher level. And Lindsay needs to make good on his draft performance. And I'd rank it in terms of likelihood in that order. Uh, Sabuki's going to be like the second best prospect in the system next year. I'll probably put Humphreys top 10 if he comes back and has his stuff. And hey, maybe Lindsay finally puts it all together for like 400 at bats. And it's a potential like four and a half tool center fielder. Four tool center fielder, whatever. So I'd, I'd rank them in that order as most likely to jump up. I don't think we mentioned Junior Santos either, did we? Oh, we have, we have not. Uh, he's another July 2nd guy. He's like six foot eight pitcher. Uh, who has surprisingly good control for his size, uh, body control, I mean, um, and he could very easily uh, explode forward. But now we're talking about not only a July 2nd prospect uh, or a high school pitching prospect, but all of those things, which is uh, fundamentally not a good profile <laughs> to bet the, uh, on. This is literally just take control, delete, and just goodbye. Yep, yep. Um, like literally, literally just start throwing darts at this point. <laughs> <laughs> One guy that I think um, will be a guy that people will start talking about next year is Dyson Acosta. I saw him when I went to Kingsport last year, and the profile as it is is decent. He's six foot two, one hundred sixty, a little lanky, so there's some projection there. And the fastball is eighty nine to ninety two, and you know, so if you factor in a little bit of physical growth, he could start hitting the mid nineties. But what makes me most excited about him is his curveball. Um, it's a high 70s to low 80s pitch. It has big 12.5 and, and excuse me, a big 11.5 and 12.6 drop. He needs to tighten it up a little bit. But multiple times when I saw him uh, pitch, he flashed a plus curveball. Literally was the best curveball that I have seen in all of the games that I've gone to in the 2018 season. Like, mm. I would watch the pitch, and I would just go like, mm. Like, it was just 
a hammer of a pitch. And obviously, it's a little biased because he's pitching against, you know, guys that are in the Appalachian League. These are rookies as young guys. So there's going to be a lot of bad swings just because of where it is. But that curveball, I think, is one of the best curveballs in the system. And really, nobody is talking about him. And I think that is going to change next year. Uh, he probably should be in Brooklyn. Um, How old did you say he was? How old is he? I'm not really sure here. Let me go to baseball reference. He was signed uh, during the 2016 to 2017. Probably, probably like 18 or 19 at this point. 20. 20. Yeah, August 24th, 1998. Okay. All right, so if he goes to Brooklyn next year, he'll be about age appropriate. Yeah, that's fine. And that's a pretty high review of a cur- of a curveball from somebody in the Appalachian League. Yeah, no, it, it was it was one of the best pitches that I have seen. It was just and it wasn't just one or two. I mean, it was flashing like I would say plus. So it was only a couple and he threw a bunch of curveballs, but let's say every one three was just like mm, like damn. I also like the uh, the velocity gap that you described there. Like that's something I complain a lot about with Noah Syndergaard, how he's made his curveball too fast these days. I like that fifteen mile an hour gap between his fastball and his curveball. I think that makes him more effective. Yeah, and he also he also throws a changeup. You know, not really. Yeah, it throws a changeup. Right, exactly. Throws a changeup. But it's you know to uh, a pitch that sits in that gap between the fastball and the curveball to full hitters with. But he's a guy that I think is going to uh, go places. Um, I might be completely wrong, but that is the best thing about doing this. You can just say stupid crap and say these guys are going to be great. And then when they're not, you can just shrug and say like, well, done. Chris is going to review our list. And if we don't meet a certain success criteria, he fires us all and brings in a new prospect team. (laughs) So the I'm pressure's kind of on. on you being and that being right. <laughs> uh, uh, there see. was one one middling reliever that I think has been overlooked a little bit in the slew of middling relievers the Mets have. Um, that being Matt Blackham. I don't have a ton to say about him, but his results have been pretty good. He doesn't strike me as that drastically different from the like Eric Handholds, uh, Bobby Wall. Drew Smith, that class of guys, tier below the the incredible Stephen Vlines, of course. Um, but he's something that he's somebody that I think should be more on our radar as a potential shuttle arm either this year or next year, or maybe mm. trade bait if a team aside from the Mets decides they want some fringy uh, relief pitching. I don't think other teams do that. Damn, <laughs> that's a Mets thing. <laughs> Let me look through my list here of just other I guys. Think, I think um, Riley Gilliam is somebody mm-hmm. I, I liked coming out of the draft. Um, I saw him pitch a little bit at Clemson. He uh, has a really good curveball. The fastball is not bad. It's like 91 to 93. Um, he's already a reliever, which is a knock on him. But if this wasn't the Mets, if this was like, I don't know, I don't know, the Red Sox or something, like he could probably be in a big league bullpen. The Rays. The Rays, maybe. Um, now, I don't know how good he is, how good he would be when he got there, but he, he could probably move very quickly, being like an elite uh, college closer. And as as 
a short as a fellow short guy, just like Gilliam is. I think he's only five <laughs> ten. Something Which in like baseball that. is pretty short. I am always willing to root for short guys. Yeah, and the curveball is like legit, like decent. Um, yeah. Ansel Mourinho merits some mention just as a potential utility guy. Uh, it's kind of probably will if he if he is viable, he probably will move in the same group as the real prospect infielders. But he's mildly interesting as a potential depth infield outfield option down the line. Which and those guys have value. It's not something to be super excited about, but if you can develop them and pay them the minimum, you don't have to go out and dump five million dollars into your bench every offseason. I feel like after all the trades, that should be like the log line for the Mets system. This guy has value. <laughs> <laughs> not totally useless. It's a guy that um reminds me actually when you bring up Hansel Moreno, a guy that at least physically, reminds me a lot of Moreno, is Jalen Palmer, who the Mets drafted this year. And he hit, you know, I think 300 in the GCL, but he also had a high bat dip, and again, it's the GCL. So take the stats with a grain of salt. But the athleticness of him, you know, he's a very athletic, slim, kind of lanky kid, um, reminds me a lot of Moreno, who is kind of tall, slim, lanky, and that isn't exactly a too exciting comparison. But it also reminds me, and this is kind of more of the swing, of Alfonso Soriano, and that is a bit more of an exciting profile. Um, they both kind of have very smooth, easy flow in their swing, and it's a lot of arm and not a lot of uh, lower half. And... You know, I think he's a guy that can actually impress and shoot up the system. Maybe not uh, in the in the top twenty five list next year because, again, he's still so young. But in a you know year or two, uh, he's a guy that I wouldn't be surprised at seeing him on a list. And he's a local kid. He's from uh, Flushing, so that's always more points in his favor. Pride of pride of Long Island. You guys know that uh, Stephen Matz is from Long Island. I really? haven't heard that. Big Wait, news. Really? Big if true. <laughs> and is it true that Todd Frazier is from Tom's River? What? I, I can confirm that. Yeah. Huh. I actually grew up like ten minutes from Tom, from his house. <laughs> so we have a first-hand report. Yeah, first-hand report. Here first. Todd Frazier <laughs> is indeed from Tom's River. Can confirm. <laughs> Let's see what other guys are kind of interesting in this stupid big list that I. Does interesting have to mean good? No, well, and someone that you find could also be good so horrifically Somebody, bad that know, it's so actually like, um, funny. I'm I'm not convinced Carlos Cortez is anything, but I'm kind of fascinated by him. I don't really think that there's anyone out there that is convinced that Carlos Cortez is anything. <laughs> Except but, the Mets. Except yeah, the Mets. Yeah. The, the, the player's so nice; they drafted him twice. Uh, why he's he doesn't do anything <laughs> he's like a first base a short first base only guy who can't hit doesn't make any sense from their perspective that makes a lot of sense <laughs> but they switch throws <laughs> that has value right <laughs> god damn it. it doesn't matter that he can't really play the outfield and that it 
really doesn't matter. That they he gave him an overslot bonus. I they gave him a million dollars. <laughs> they gave him an overslot bonus. A considerable one, yeah. 300k <laughs> overslot? <laughs> he was a million dollar bonus, Lucas. What? <laughs> what? It was the second time they've drafted him. <laughs> Uh, I forgot that he was like if, if they draft him, it's bad enough. Like the third round pick, that's awful. But they gave him more money than they had to. Who was gonna pay him? That is the thing that happened. <laughs> Mickey Janice is always a fun player. Knuckleball mm-hmm. in the system. I will forever root for Mickey Janice because yep. praise Dicky. Mm-hmm. Praise Dicky. Praise him. Ramen. Uh, who else? Jose Moreno, he's a guy who's still in Kingsport. He throws 100. Um, I mean, anytime anyone throws 100, it's exciting. I think between... Who are the only 100-mile-per-hour throwers in the system? It's just really Moreno and Chris Vile. Bautista. Well, R. he's R. not in the system anymore. Oh, right, they traded him! <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot! Oops. Uh, Bryce Montes de Oca, when he is yeah. actually on yeah, the Is field. he over the pitch? I don't know. I would like him to. It's the Mets, <laughs> so probably not. I'm rooting for you, Montez Daca. Bryce. Uh, Marcel Renteria he used to throw like 97, 98, 99, but not so much anymore. Um, I don't know if that was just kind of very exciting, you know, very uh, inflated draft reports or some fatigue and injury because I know... Um, when I saw him, I think it was his first start off the DL last year in Columbia, and he was really sitting like 91 to 95, which is still not bad, but it isn't, you know, triple digits yeah, or anything. He's from uh, New Mexico, right? University of New Mexico? Yes, yes. Uh, to touch on someone they traded for, uh, Walter Lockett, who was part of their return for uh, Ploiecki. Uh, he's basically fastball slider guy, starter edition. Not yeah, yet to make the change. Not good. He's not good. No, none of the I, players at the Mets got back. Or I don't understand. They got that other second baseman who can run but can't really hit a double A and is twenty five. It's not not good. Don't worry though. We have former All Star Hector Santiago for rotation depth, and they are confident in Dowdy and Lockett's ability. Sweet. <laughs> uh well. Are there any guys, well, not guys, but are there any storylines, I guess, for lack of better words, that you guys are, you know, excited to see, or excited to play out in the 2019 season? Oh. I know for, for me, I'm, you know, just as a local guy, I'm always excited to see Brooklyn do good. It was kind of Brooklyn must crap. Be. Yeah, exactly. And the best way to do that is not to draft not good college players, but yet they always go back to that well. That's a bold strategy, Cotton. (laughs) I think I saw them in 2016, the year that they drafted like something like 15 college players in a row to start the draft. (laughs) It was like Kobe (laughs) Woodmincy's year. uh, I thought Kobe Woodmincy would be good. I was wrong. (laughs) Yeah, stuff happens. Um. I'm most excited to see Sabuki come back, honestly. Yeah, like, probably I'm, too. Like, I'm super excited because I think he's... Uh, I'm I'm very intrigued to see if the Mets can come up with creative ways to use him 
that doesn't leave him in the minors for the next four years, right? Because these surgeries have a shelf life. And if his fastball curveball combo is good enough to make him a, an effective reliever already, get him up here as fast as we can in some sort of Josh yeah, Hader. Answer. Bullets. Right. Like, and, and teams have shown that like these multi-inning high strikeout elite relievers are extremely valuable and have high utility. And if you can come up with a creative way to deploy him in that manner, of course it's the Mets and they won't, but like, I'm really excited to see what happens with him. Um, Where do you think he gets assigned? Oh God! It's got to be Port St. Lucie, right? It should. I I don't think so. I think that he's going to go back to Columbia because he's he's a guy that didn't really have too much experience to begin with. I think Mm -hmm. he has a total of like 40 innings in 2016, the year that he was really good, and like 12 the next year when he was injured. So he has yep. not a lot of experience and the, the clock is ticking on him, but I think that Columbia is a safe place for him to get reacclimated to, to pitching professionally against live hitters. And, you know, if he does amazing, you don't need to keep him there for long. You can keep him yeah. there for, you know, four or five starts, whatever you want to do. It's I mean, just going to think... be infuriating watching him carve up. <laughs> Like, like, let's think about an ideal world where he is back to himself. You send him to Columbia, you watch 10 innings and say, yep, he's good to go. You send him to St. Lucie for 30, and you promote him to double A for 30 if he's still good. What's actually going to happen, because it's the Mets, is they'll leave him in Columbia for 50 innings, and then he'll get a taste of St. Lucie at the end of the season. Yep. Well, I'm planning a trip to go to Columbia, so I kind of selfishly hope that he's still going to be there. But What is that? Um, so I could see him. No, no. When are you? Oh, oh, oh! I was looking at the uh, week after the draft. The draft is the third, fourth, and fifth. So I was thinking about like June tenth or so, which is I think a week or two weeks before the first half is over, and that generally is when When a lot of teams start doing all the promotions and everything. Well, I will be interested to see if they have any changes in development philosophy now that. new regime and all that we'll see we will see all right guys well this was a good discussion uh very informative and if anybody any listeners out there you know any more questions anything elaborate on we will be having on the site please ask us questions about gavin sakini Yes. We'll ask us any any kind of questions that you want. You can think of it like an AMA kind of thing, whatever, on our uh, com- comprehensive top prospect list. And, of course, you can always send emails to um, the podcast. And, yeah, all that stuff that Brian always says. Rate, subscribe, all those good things. Well, I am Steve Seiper. And Lucas Flahos and Kenny Levin, thank you for joining me on this discussion of Mets Minor League System.
Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for listening. We truly appreciate it. Please go to AmazingAvenue.com where you can get all this information and much, much more about the Mets. We are launching a new series today called One Last Move where we uh, get a bunch of our writers to write about what they would do to sort of close out the offseason for the Mets. So check that out. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can download this show from blogtalkradio.com, from Apple Podcasts, from Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe where applicable. That helps us out quite a bit. Uh, You can email the show, aaudiopodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow all the folks you heard today on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Steve is at Steve Saipa. Ken is at Ken Lavin 91 And Lucas is LVlahos343. So next week, we'll be back with uh, another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Hopefully the Mets have done something interesting by then. Maybe taking one of our One Last Move suggestions to heart. So we'll see what happens there. And uh, until next time, let's go Mets.